You're listening to The Lively Show, episode 68, and the season two premiere. Welcome to The Lively Show. I'm your host, Jess Lively, and this blogcast is designed to uplift, inspire, and add a little extra intention to your everyday. Welcome to season two, guys. Thank you so much for sticking with me during the break between season one and season two. And if you're just joining us today, welcome to the show. I have really, really enjoyed the last, I think about six weeks that I've been taking off from the show. And though it may seem like I've just (laughs) not been working at all, the truth is I have gotten a very quick little trip. It was about four days to Santa Barbara with my husband, Mr. Lively, and I did get a few days off here and there throughout the break as well. But otherwise, I actually was still running Life with Intention online for a solid month as well as getting season two ready and also getting the systems in place so that I can actually come back in a more sustainable way. All those episodes leading up to this break, as you probably heard, especially with uh, Katie Richardson with the Stop the Glorification of of Busy episode, etc. I was talking about how overworked I was doing way too much. So this break has really been a chance to reset from the show and really find ways to make this more manageable. One of the ways that I've done that is by expanding my team. I have been working with my friend Ashley as an associate producer to help me with the episode selections and the topics we're discussing, as well as now adding my amazing Grace, assistant Grace, to this team as well for the show. She's now my sound editor and going through and pre-editing my episodes so that I can go through and save a lot of time on the back end. So those two people are making my job just a little bit easier and hopefully make this show a little more sustainable while also increasing the quality for you. In addition, I've also decided to make things more manageable for myself by focusing on a certain project that I'm working on right now. I'm not ready to share exactly what that project is, but I will say I've now really taken the one thing, which was from Jay Papasan's episode. You can listen to it at justlively.com slash Jay Papasan to learn more about his one thing book and idea, focusing on one huge project along with Lively Show. So I'm going to focus on my Monday through Wednesdays on that project and then have Thursdays and Fridays dedicated to prepping the episode for the following week for the Lively Show, as well as hosting interviews and having meetings on those following days. With this in mind, I will not be doing Tuesday episodes, those mini editions, if you will for the foreseeable future while I'm working on this other project. That's not to say that the Tuesday episodes won't come back in the future, but going forward right now, I'm really focusing just on the Thursday episodes. So you're not gonna lose that, but just for the time being, while I'm truly focused on this other project, my big one thing, I'm trying to distract myself with other projects as little as possible. Now let's get into today's show. So in today's episode, which is the season premiere for season two, I'm so excited because I kind of feel like it's the perfect bookend to the season finale from season one. In season one's finale with Pat Flynn, the host and my podcasting superhero of the Smart Passive Income podcast, Pat mentioned that one of the people that has changed his life is Hal Elrod through his book, The Miracle Morning. 
And I knew I was having Hal on the show for season two, and I was so excited to just kind of put his up at the front to put his first for you to listen to because it's such a great continuation of what Pat shared at the end of last season. In addition, I just have to say, even just editing this episode, I laughed, I teared up, I cried. This show has all the things. In the episode, we're going to speak with Hal about his amazing life story and the Miracle Morning. We'll talk about the tragic, tragic accident that happened moments after Hal got his first standing ovation, which ultimately ended his life for a solid six minutes. We're then going to talk about the dire diagnosis that his doctors gave him once he recovered from that death experience and how he defied the odds and what mindsets helped him do that. In addition, we're also going to talk about the other darkest period of his life that he actually believes was more difficult to overcome. We're going to talk about how he got himself out of over $50,000 in credit card debt, depression, and fear, which really was, he believes, the darkest part of his life. Like This part was much more difficult to overcome. He'll explain why, and also he'll explain how he does it. In addition, he has six practices he recommends that we all do in our mornings to expand our level of personal development. I am currently reading Hal's book right now myself, loving it. I am a big proponent of a morning practice, and he just takes it to the next level. And I'm actually incorporating some of these other elements he speaks of that I have not been doing in my morning victory and finding that they're amazingly helpful. Let's go to the show. Thank you, thank you, thank you for coming on the show. I'm so excited to talk with you today. Jess, this is exciting. I'm excited as well. It's it's mutual, so thanks for having me on. (laughs) As I have mentioned to you before this call, Pat Flynn, in his episode in the season finale of season one of The Lively Show, said that you have been instrumental in changing his life. But before we get to exactly how you've changed his life, I want to share your background and how you got to where you are. Absolutely. I'll give you kind of the point by point chronological order. When I was 15 years old, my dream was to be a radio disc jockey. And I had my own little DJ business. I was only a sophomore in high school, but I I would earn $75 an hour DJing like everything from weddings to school dances to car shows, you name it. My dream of being on the the radio was, you know, kind of like, yeah, maybe in college, I'll get an internship. And, you know, I'm not thinking it's anytime soon. Well, Call it the law of attraction. I have no idea, but the uh, the local radio station manager in my hometown, Oakhurst, California, a little small little town up near Yosemite National Park in Northern California, radio station manager calls me and he says, "Hal, hey, um, I heard you're a DJ around town, and I want to have a high school student host a radio show. Would you be up for the job?" And I was like, "Yes, you know, my that's my dream. Are you kidding me?" <laughs> and so I get the job, and I need a nickname for the radio, and I couldn't think of anything. So my mom goes, "Why don't you rhyme it with Hal? Be like." your pal Hal or make it cool with slang. Be yo pal Hal. (laughs) I said, mom, you're such a dork. I'm never going to be yo pal Hal. And uh, one of my websites, you can go to yopalhal.com. So mom is always right. (laughs) But uh, fast forward four years, I was on the radio again after college, gave up my dream job to start in sales. And I started selling Cutco kitchen knives. Why did you leave radio for Cutco? So I was trying to do both. A friend of mine, Teddy, sold Cutco, and he did well. You know, he's put himself through college. He made good money. He was always bugging me, you should do it, you should do it, you should do it. And I think he made like a little percentage off me, but I don't think that was why. He just genuinely thought, you know, he really believed in what he was doing and thought I could do really well at it. And uh, I, I was like, dude, I'm a DJ. I'm not a salesperson. You know, thanks, but no thanks. And one day I just happened to, I was with him. I met the manager of the office. 
really cool guy, really down to earth, really authentic. I was like, so what's this knife selling thing, man? You know, give me the lowdown. And he broke it down. He said, hey, you know, you can still DJ on the radio. I was only on the radio like two nights a week, you know, midnight to 6 a.m., by the way, right? When you're when you're new, it's like the grunt shift. <laughs> so midnight to 6 a.m., I was uh, new on the radio. And he said, yeah, start training this weekend. I went through training that weekend. It was crazy, actually. I DJed midnight to 6 a.m., Friday to Saturday night. I went to training 9 a.m., so got off work at 6 a.m., drove straight to the office and was in training from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. And then DJ that night at midnight to 6 a.m. Like I no sleep. It was crazy. Wow. And then started off and to keep a long story, a long Cutco story short, my first 10 days, I broke the all time regional fast record, which means in the western half of the United States in 50 years, I sold more Cutco in my first 10 days than anyone ever had. It was like, you know, I don't know, hundreds of thousands of, of sales reps before me. And, you know, I was a mediocre kid, right? Like, meaning, <laughs> I, you know, I never did anything. It wasn't, you know, how you know, those people just that, like, they're good at everything they do. Yes. Right. Yes. And they always have been, you know, like, they're, they're, they're like, they're A students and they're like athletes. And I was, I was the opposite of that kid. I got bad grades. I wasn't an athlete. I wasn't very popular. In fact, the only record I held, true story, I had the most hours of detention of any student at my <laughs> high school. As a senior, I had 180 hours of detention. There was no way I could serve at all. <laughs> And uh, my, my parents had to like donate money to the school and stuff to get me to graduate. But, oh my God. <laughs> um, right. And then, it's, and then here's the funny part. Years later, I'm brought back as a motivational speaker at that high school. That's the funniest part. What did you say to the kids when you came back? Well, it was after my car accident. Uh, so a year and a half into my sales career, I, I continued breaking company records and I became like the speaker. They had me speak at all the conferences. 10 days in, you're number one. What led to beating the record? Did you decide to do that when you started the job or did that just happen because of the actions you took? Thank you. I totally skipped over that part. Um, I tell this story enough as a speaker, you think I would have it down. <laughs> so yeah, so it was my second day of training. And this is where I went from like, and this, by the way, it's an, this is an important part of the story because it's really a universal lesson for everybody that who you've been in the past has nothing to do or very little to do with who you can choose to become from this day forward. And even though my past was very mediocre, in that moment, I found out that the most anyone had ever sold in their first 10 days was $12,000 of Cutco. And it was actually a girl who had just, she had actually just broken like the record that had been standing for years, just a few weeks before I started. And she only lived an hour and a half away. The lesson is this. I went, you know what? If that other human being could do it, then maybe I could too. Or why not me? And I think we so often we create the separation. We are like, you know, we look at people that we admire or that are living the life we want or creating the results that we want. And we envy them like, oh, my gosh, if only I were like them. And then we create the separation like they're so different. If I were as good looking as they are or as charismatic or had as many friends or followers or experience on and on and on, there's always the separation. And I just took the route of, you know what, when she started selling Cutco, it's not like she was born knowing how to sell something. So I decided that if she could do it, so could I. And I think that was a real important belief. And it's one I adopt now. You know, I look at like a Pat Flynn and I'm like, hey, if he could do what he does on his podcast, you know, so can I. And I look at the best-selling authors. Hey, if they could do it, so can I. So I think we have to really use the anything any other human being has ever accomplished as evidence. And that's the key word there, evidence of what's possible for us. And so I went out, I set the goal on my, I was like, you know what? I told my manager after training, I'm going to break the record. I'm going to go for it. I want to do it. And I thought he was going to be excited for me. And he was really matter of fact, kind of looked almost just unimpressed. And I was, I was like, I, my heart sank a little like, oh, I thought you were going to be happy for me or excited. 
And he goes, Hal, honestly, I hear that every training class we have. You know, we do training every week and every week I hear that and no one ever does it. He said, if you're willing to commit and, and work harder than you ever worked before and do whatever it takes, he said, then I'll mentor you, I'll guide you. And I believe that you could do it, but it's going to be harder than anything you've ever done in your life. I just wanted to do it because it sounded fun and exciting. <laughs> Not the hardest thing ever in my life, but at that point it was kind of like I was embarrassed to say anything otherwise. So I'm like, all right, I'll do it. If he had just smiled and nodded and encouraged you and felt like, yes, you can do it, Hal, would you have actually achieved it? Or did he have to throw the wet blanket in order for you to recognize what it would really take? Yeah, Jess, you know, what's interesting. I've never been asked that before. And I, and I almost have never considered it. So that, that's really, you're good. Um, <laughs> I, no, you're, I probably wouldn't have. I, I don't think I would have. Right. He really like, yeah, he, he that pushback, right. That rather than, yeah, great, let's do it. It's like, hey, dude, are you really, do you, do you even know what you're saying? And I think he actually said that you don't know what you're saying. Like you, you have no idea what it would take to do something that's never been done before in 50 years. All right. I'm like, uh, okay. So you're probably right. I wouldn't have. And I went out there and my first day, it was 10 days. So if you, if you do the math, right, $12,000 with a record, I had to average 1300 a day. And I went out the first day, like high five my manager, like I'm going to do it, you know, 1300 <laughs> And my first day I went, oh, for three, zero sales on three appointments. And by the way, and I saw my grant, like the people I thought would buy the most, my grandparents, you know, and our neighbors, like people that I was like, I know you have money and I, and, and you love me. So there's no way you're going to say no. And I got rejected three times in a row and I called my manager ready to quit. And he said, Hal, there's one of two ways you could respond. You could either give into how you're feeling right now, which I'm guessing is pretty discouraged and kind of defeated and maybe wanting to give up. And I go, yeah, that, that's where I'm at. <laughs> <laughs> How'd you know? <laughs> and he says, or you could do what most people wouldn't do, but it's the only thing that someone who's really committed to being successful would do. And I was like, okay. And he said, you just accept what already happened that you can't change. And you get on the phone and you make even more calls than you're planning on making and you go make it up tomorrow. And you realize it's a numbers game. Good days, bad days. You can't control which is which. I was like, all right, I'll do it. And I went out and the next day I sold almost $3,000 of Cutco and I sold $15,000 in my first 10 days. That's amazing. To answer your question about what was it, I really attributed to two things. Number one, well, number one is a good product. So three things if you consider I was selling something that I genuinely believed it was, you know, guaranteed forever, phenomenal product. I believed in it. But really the two attributes, if you will, that we all have access to. And that's why I think this is so important because it's not like, oh, well, I did it because I had rich parents with rich friends and they just bought a bunch of knives, you know? <laughs> no, I grew up in a, I mean, I lived in, if you're into Oakhurst, right? It's like, it's, it's not a fancy town, if you will. So the two things, number one is work ethic. And number two is enthusiasm. And, and I should say authentic enthusiasm. Like I didn't force it. It was like, I'm genuinely excited. These knives are freaking amazing. Let me cut the penny with these scissors. And what, you know, like I was excited <laughs> about it. And then work ethic. The, the beauty of that is those are the two things that every human being on this planet has access to at any given moment. And they are two of the greatest keys to success in any endeavor, whether you're a leader, whether you're an achiever, it, you know, it really doesn't matter. And so that was it. As I, I did 62 appointments in my first 10 days and the appointment took an average of about two hours. So six appointments a day. So 12 hours of appointments a day, plus driving back and forth people's houses. I was working like 14, 16 hour days for 10 days. Yeah. This reminds me of Tony Robbins, actually, and the work that he put in, especially in the beginning with his speaking career and how much he spoke. He did a similar kind of marathon sprint there. Actually, I have a question for you. Yeah. Why did you want to win or break the record? What was the why that was motivating you? I know we talked about, you know, you wouldn't have got over it had this guy not given you the reality check, but what inspired you to even try? Like, why was it that important to you? 
Yeah, it's a great question. And I think that there's the surface answer, which is the only thing I was probably aware of at that time. And then there's a much deeper answer, which like to this day, it's it's what drives me. And looking back at that point, even though I probably wasn't mature enough or aware enough to realize it, the deeper answer is what really drove me. The surface answer is there were all sorts of incentives. I get a bunch of recognition, first of all, and I'm 19 years old. I'm like, dude, I'd be the, I'd break the record. I'd be the man, you know? But number two, I got a limo ride, a five-star dinner. I got to go skydiving. I won like $4,000 of Cutco, right? I earned like $4,000 in income. So those were lots of incentives, right? Shiny pennies, really. Lots of shiny pennies. And ultimately, though, deep down, I just realized I had been mediocre my whole life. And I just decided I'm going to draw my line in the sand. Like I'm no longer willing to accept mediocrity. I'm going to actually try to achieve something. You know, it was the scariest thing in the world because when you have no reference points, like you can't look back in your life and like, yeah, if I try something, I attempt, you know, I achieve, I'm an achiever. I didn't have that. It was like, I've never done anything. I find that hard to believe. I have to just give a little pushback on that because you're already DJing in high school, which that alone, regardless of detention, yeah. <laughs> and whatever is going on there. I mean, that was a really, I think, unusual. You're right. Well, I usually, I, you know, you're right. And I usually do try to slide in like a disclaimer, like other than DJ, okay. right? right? Yeah. Like one single thing in my life, which when you really look at it though, work ethic, it took a little hustle. Like with DJing, you know, I was putting flyers around town and stuff, but I would work one night a week, maybe three nights a month, <laughs> right? So I was just making $75 an hour. So I'd work four hours on a Friday night and I'd make more than my friends made in two weeks working 20 hours a week. So again, yeah, it was kind of cool and extraordinary. And then I got on the radio and stuff, but it didn't take any work ethic. So I had no, no background. I mean, really looking back, you can ask my parents, I didn't like doing work in the yard. I didn't like, like I, I was really lazy. I, I really had never shown work ethic with anything. So this really challenged you. And that challenge is what sparked this. Is sky's the limit? Is it just achieving as much as possible for the sake of achieving or avoiding mediocrity as much as possible? What's that really deep why now? Yeah, I don't think it's avoidance at all. And I, you know, I mean, that could be part of it, but I really think it, it's the idea that I look at everything that, that I personally attempt, the driving forces are for me to become the person that I need to be to create the life that I really, truly want. Everything that I attempt is that, right? Like every day when the alarm goes off, like every moment, every choice, we're faced with the opportunity to either do the right thing, something that helps us become the person that we need to be to create what we want, or do the easy thing. And sometimes the, the right thing is the easy thing, but usually it's not. It's usually the things that takes a little more effort. Easy thing is doing nothing. <laughs> easy thing is turning on the TV, right? The right thing is going to the gym. The right thing is waking up when the alarm clock goes off instead of hitting the snooze button because you're, you're telling yourself that I have the discipline to get fed in the morning, which therefore says I'm a disciplined person, and therefore I can do the things that I need to do to create the life that I want that require discipline. Everything that we do is determining who we're becoming and who we're becoming determines how we're going to live our life, show up and what type of life we're going to create. For me, I just decided, I guess, you know, I started that process at that in sales and that training that I want an extraordinary life, but most people want it, but they're not becoming the person they need to be that can create it. Absolutely. But let's go back into the story because the story is so good. So you win the record and they start having you go around and speak. Yes. I start speaking. And so a year and a half later, I've broken more records. I've, you know, stayed, I've been consistently one of the top sales reps for the company. And so I, I speak at almost every event that we have. And so we have a divisional conference with, I don't know, 
40 people there, all my peers, and I'm, you know, I'm 20 at this time. And my, most of the people that I'm selling Cutco with are college students. And I give a speech and what made it unique, if you will, or kind of a special moment was I, you know, I'd given dozens of speeches at that time, but I got a standing ovation. So I was, I was just elated. I was like, oh my gosh, I got a standing ovation. This is so cool. And I will tell you, I had started listening to Tony Robbins and some other, you know, keynote speakers and trainers and that sort of thing. And so at that time, I did have a, like a, a dream other than being like a Cutco Hall of Fame member. Um, I had a dream of <laughs> when I was done with that, I wanted to be a professional speaker, right? What, you know, popularly known as a motivational speaker or, or a keynote speaker. So that dream was born. So I had a standing ovation. It was like this affirming moment, like, hey, maybe I'm meant to do this. Like if everybody in here likes me and they like the speech and they got value out of it, that's a microcosm probably for more. You know, it's like why if, if everyone here likes it enough to stand and applaud, maybe other people would, you know, would, would find what I do valuable. And so that that dream was kind of reaffirmed. Well, I left that night, again, I floated out of there all, you know, I was like, woohoo, I'm amazing. <laughs> I got into my brand new Ford Mustang, which I had just bought with my own money three weeks earlier had the new car smell, shiny white, five-speed, you know, gray interior, whole bit. I got into the new car, and my last thought that night, I wanted to call my mom and dad to tell them how great the night went. And I remember thinking, you know, it's too late. It was like 1130 at night. I said, they're, they're probably asleep. And uh, I got onto the freeway. Actually, the last memory from that night was my best friend, Jeremy, got stuck at the red light behind me. And I saw him in the rearview mirror, and I thought, ah, too bad for Jeremy. Right. You know, I mean, yeah. only hindsight's twenty twenty. So I get on the freeway, cruise control set at 70 miles an hour. I'm jamming out to tunes like life is good. And I've got an hour and a half drive ahead of me. Well, that was my last memory again, seeing Jeremy get on the freeway. I don't remember what I'm about to tell you, Jess. I only know this, in fact, from eyewitnesses and police reports and hospital records. But at around 1134, 1136 p.m., somewhere around there, a drunk driver got on the freeway going the wrong way. And he was in a full-size Chevy truck. He got on the freeway on an, what he thought was an on-ramp, but it was actually an off-ramp for the traffic headed my way. And he was going 80 miles an hour in this full-size Chevy truck. I don't remember seeing him coming at me. I don't know if I, I, I have no, no memory of that the rest of the night. He crashed head-on into my Ford Mustang. I'm doing 70 miles an hour. He's doing 80 miles an hour. And a 150-mile-an-hour head-on collision occurred. My airbag exploded, windshield shattered and the roof buckled, and the worst was yet to come, as my car spun sideways off the drunk driver, and the car behind me crashed, like I spun sideways in front of them, and they didn't have time to even brake. They were doing 70 miles an hour on the freeway when my car spun in front of them, and they just crashed into my driver's side door full speed. And I always, to give people kind of perspective, if you could just take a second and look to your left or put your hands up like you're driving, pretend you're driving your car, right? Look to your left and imagine that a car is going 70 miles an hour and just crashes into your door without even braking. And what you might imagine could happen to your car and your body is, you know, I mean, every, the worst happened, the entire left side of my car crushed the left side of my body and immediately I fractured, I broke 11 bones in an instant. I'll go through my injuries real quick because people usually ask and they're curious or whatever. So uh, for those of you that are squeamish, you want to like fast forward 30 seconds, okay? Um, but I, my femur, right, the biggest bone in the human body, it broke in half in two pieces and one half came out the side of my thigh. My pelvis broke in three separate places. It was crushed between the center console and it fractured three times. My humerus bone behind the bicep suffered the same fate as my femur. It broke in half and came out behind my elbow. My elbow was shattered. I severed the radial nerve in my left arm. My left eye socket was shattered so bad that it's all rebuilt in titanium. 
my ear was almost completely severed. And then the ceiling buckled and it sliced a V in the top of my head and just bleeding from, I mean, head to toe. I immediately was in a coma. And Jeremy, a minute later, came to the scene of the accident, you know, took him a minute to realize, oh my God, that's Hal's car. And if anybody wants to see pictures of the car, you can you know, go to my website or Google Hal Elrod uh, and you'll, you'll see you know, halelrod.com or Google Hal Elrod and you can see the, the car pictures are pretty crazy. Jeremy called 911. He ran over. He, he took my pulse. He thought I was dead because you know, I'm covered in blood and he's yelling at me, Hal, Hal, Hal. And I was in a coma, so I'm just unresponsive. It's 11.30 night. It's pretty dark outside. And he checked my pulse and I was alive. He called 911, the paramedics, the fire department, the police, everybody came out. And they couldn't get me out of the car because I was trapped. And it took them almost an hour with the jaws of life to cut the roof off and pull me out. And when they did, I actually bled to death. I died on the side of the freeway. And I was clinically dead for approximately six minutes, uh, I think five to six minutes. Rushed to the hospital. They revived me on the helicopter, got me breathing again. And I, I had emergency surgery and my 11 broken bones, I've got, you know, metal titanium rod in my leg, my arm, screws in my elbow, those plates in my eye. I was resuscitated and my parents got there a couple hours later. And, and essentially, I was in a coma for six days, came out of the coma. Doctor said I would never walk again. Two weeks later, I took my first step and I, they said I'd been in the hospital for a year. Four weeks after that, I got out of the hospital and against doctor's orders, I begged. My, there was a sales contest for Cutco. And like, I could, I could, I mean, I literally could, I was in a wheelchair. Um, I like my left hand because of my nerve, I didn't have use of my left hand for six months. It just dangled on my wrist. It just didn't move. Couldn't use the hand or the wrist. Couldn't move my hand um, and uh, or my fingers. And I begged my parents to take me to uh, on sales appointments. And they said, no, 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 that's no, no. Everyone said, no, it's like the last thing you need to worry about. And what they didn't get, I finally got after like a week went by and I'm like, dad, we're already a week into the sales contest and I haven't sold anything. And, you know, I, I, and he's like, Hal, I just pulled him aside. I said, dad, you don't understand. Like, I need this to get back like my confidence and my life. And like, I, I'm not doing this because I, I need to beat people or win a trophy or make money. Like, I just got need to get back to normal. And my dad finally, like, he, he was like, all right, like, don't tell your mom, get on the phone, make some sales appointments. And I scheduled appointments and to keep a you know, another long story short, um, four days left in this, in this 14 day sales contest. And my dad drove me to my appointments. Yes. I used sympathy in any way that I could. I mean, <laughs> right? I mean you gotta use what you can. It's like, plus I'm like being you know, held by my dad. I mean, it's like, you know, I couldn't hide what happened, but I sold $7,000 of Cutco in these last four days of the contest. And I went to the, the conference, it's actually like the, one of the like proudest, most special moments of my life where the first night of the conference, the president of our company gave this motivational speech on like overcoming adversity and he ended it with my story. And then he like had me stand up and he said, I don't know if this is true, but I heard a rumor that Hal sold knives the last couple of days. I don't know if it's true, but we'll see tomorrow. And I ended up taking fourth place out of like 500 sales reps that had worked for the contest or whatever. And the funny part is Jeremy or the really fitting part, Jeremy, my best friend who found me at the scene of the accident, he took third place and I took fourth place. That's incredible. So you're, dead. You come back to life and you're sitting in the hospital. You have a choice to make whether you want to take things as slow as everyone's telling you things should take or you're taking the choice like you did to get well as quickly as possible and get back into your routine as quickly as possible. What made you choose that route or even believe that it was possible when everyone was telling you that it wasn't possible? It's interesting. Uh, there's, 
part of it might have been the fact that I had such significant brain damage that I was delusional. <laughs> I wondered. Yeah, like too naive for my own good. And I'm like, whatever, screw the doctors. I'm going to walk again, you know? Well, I think that it was also a blessing that you don't have a memory of the car coming at you. I can only imagine the trauma. I mean, obviously you have still all of the medical things you had to go through, but I feel like the memory loss there may have been a, somehow a blessing. Sure, blessing in disguise. I mean, I, I've always been curious, you know, like what was I thinking? What was that, you know, what happened? And also I get asked a lot, like, did you, you know, you died for six minutes. Did you see a light? And I go, I don't, I don't remember because, you know, the brain damage, I mean, I died right after, you know, like an hour after I, my, my head was smashed. So I, I have no memory of, of that experience, but I'm always curious. Like, I don't know what happened here. I think this is the best, the best kind of story that encapsulates this. Okay. So I came out of the coma six days after the accident and a week later, after I had been awake and interacting and talking and, you know, trying to get my memory of what had happened to me. And because like every time I fall asleep, I'd wake back up. My parents would have to retell. I, I would have forgot. Like my short term memory was horrible. Like, Jess, you could have visited me for hours in the hospital, gone to lunch and come back. And I would not have I would not have known you'd been there for before lunch. I'd be like, Jess, I was in a car accident. You're like, yeah, we just <laughs> hung out for like three hours. So I had a real bad short-term memory. So once the memory caught up and I figured out what was happening, the doctors called my parents in a week after I came out of the coma. And they sat them down. They said, we're really concerned with Hal. We believe he's in denial. And the reason we believe that is every time we see Hal and spend time with him, you know, whether it's his nurses or doctors or therapists, Hal's always smiling and laughing and joking and making us laugh. And they said, that's not normal. You know, they said not for a 20-year-old young man who has been told he might not ever walk in and his body is broken and he's going to have permanent scarring and, you know, he might not hear out of his ear. We don't, you know, I mean, the, the, the prognosis was pretty grim. And they said, so we've seen this before where Hal's reality is so painful for him to accept that he is just checked out of it. And he's just in a state of like delusion and denial and pretending everything's okay. And eventually it's going to come crashing down. And, and so we want him to, we want to get him to experience the real emotions that he's covering up while he's here in the hospital in this safe environment. You know, he's probably scared and sad and, and depressed and angry. And that's okay. That's normal. He's got to go through those emotions and just talk about them and feel them to heal. They told my mom and dad, can you please talk to him and find out how he's really feeling? And my dad came in that night and he said, uh, Hal, you know, I, I was watching TV, you know, I'm in the hospital bed. I mean, it was literally like a week after I came out of the coma. I'm still in a bad shape. My, my eyes bandaged, my ears bandaged, my head is shaved. It's sewn together. You know I mean? I'm pretty bad. And my dad sit, sits me down and I could tell he had been like, you know, his eyes were like red and kind of watery. Like he'd been like crying or he was trying not to cry. And so I, I, I said, dad, what's going on? And he said, Hal, hey, I, you know, I know you have a lot of visitors. And when your friends are here, you guys are laughing and joking and telling stories. And it's great. I'm happy about that. But he said, the doctors are concerned. And he explained the whole thing. And he said, how are you really feeling? Are you, are you sad? Are you scared? Are you feeling depressed at all? Are you angry? You know, he said, Lord knows your mom and I want to strangle that drunk driver. I can understand if you're angry because I'm angry. And I, I really thought about his questions. Am I, am I sad? Hmm. Am I angry? Am I scared? Depressed? And I really thought long and hard and I looked at my dad and I shook my head and I smiled. I said, dad, I thought you knew me better than that. I said, don't you remember I live my life by the five minute rule that I learned in Cutco training? He said, remind me. I said, it's okay to be negative, but not for more than five minutes. 
when things go wrong sometimes, don't get me negative, but you set your time for five minutes, moan, complain, whatever, but after five minutes, there's no point in feeling bad about it or wishing it were different because you can't change it once it's happened. I said, Dad, I know that was for selling knives, but the same lesson applies here. I can't change what's happened to me. I said, the way I see it, and this is really where the telling part of the story is. I said, the way I see it, there's only one of two options. Number one, the doctors are right and I will never walk again. I said, and if that's the case, well then once again, five minute rule, I can't change it. If I can't walk, well then I can't walk. So I said, I promise you, you and mom have nothing to worry about because I will be the happiest person you've ever seen in a wheelchair. And that's the choice. We have it, right? We can't change what already happened in our lives, but we can choose whether we let it hurt us or whether we accept it and we're at peace with it and we're just grateful for everything else. And I said, Dad, I'll be the happiest person you've ever seen in a wheelchair. I said, but the second option, and this is the one I'm putting my energy into. See, I wasn't like, I wasn't visualizing being in a wheelchair. I said, Dad, the second option is I will walk again. The doctors might be experts in medicine, but they're not experts in me. And I said, I'm putting all my energy into walking again. I'm focusing on it. I'm visualizing it. I'm praying about it. I'm thinking about it. I'm talking about it. My whole world is around what I want while I simultaneously have accepted the worst case scenario. So I'm invincible here. Nothing can go wrong. It's either everything I ever wanted and I'm walking again, or I'm at peace with being in a wheelchair. And, you know, my dad was a little in disbelief, I think. And I kept having to kind of, no, he said, are you sure? I said, dad, this is exactly how I feel. I'm not pretending to be happy. And Jess, here's the thing. The doctors had it, if you actually look at the reality of the situation, the doctors were 180 degrees wrong. I mean, no disrespect to the doctors, but they thought that I couldn't accept my circumstances so that I was delusionally pretending to be happy. When the truth was, I had fully accepted my circumstances, so therefore I had the choice to be happy. What you're saying sounds like a Buddhist Zen master, truly. (laughs) I know you're coming from the Cutco salesman and almost it's so funny because in a way, a lot of the achievement and the striving and driving and all of those things seem in some ways to be the opposite of a Zen Buddhist monk (laughs) sitting and accepting what is in a really peaceful, still way. But you both did exactly the same thing. You accepted your circumstances completely and recognized they don't have the power to control you. No, and you're right. And the way that I kind of combine the Eastern and the Western philosophy, if you will, it's actually it's the, the tagline for my first book. My first book is called Taking Life Head On. And the tagline is love the life you have while you create the life of your dreams. And what you're talking about, about the Buddhist monk, you know, like there's so much value in the way that they approach life, in the way that they approach being at peace and accepting all things and not needing, not having your ego attached to things and basically needing nothing, enjoying everything, loving all, you know, I'm huge on that. But then I think that there's a certain element of if you do that, right, if you if you live just that life where you're all about loving the life you have and not needing to achieve anything, well, then you're potentially limited in how many people you can impact, right? If you're sitting at home, you know, or you're, you know, you live in a hut, you know, with no windows and you meditate all day. Now, now, granted, there are some, there are obviously, you can make spiritual arguments for how you might be impacting people through thought and energy and prayer and meditation, right? So not taking anything away from that. But for me, it's okay, live with that Buddhist mindset while you are striving to fulfill your potential. It's not one or the other. Most people, right, they're working towards a better life and they don't love the life they have because they're so focused on the life that they think that they want. But then as we see with so many celebrities, they get the life they think that they want, even the life of their dreams, 
And then they turn to drugs, alcohol, suicide, because they never learned how to love themselves and love their life. So I'm all about, right, simultaneously, like, yeah, be an achiever, but don't be achieving because you're not whole without it, because you can't be happy without it. Achieve through a space of freedom to fulfill your potential while you love every moment of the journey. To me, that's kind of what life is ultimately about. That's exactly what I try to teach. And for me, the vehicle for that is living and expressing our values in the present moment and into the future so that we're not just looking for the pennies to fulfill us because they can't. But I am so excited and it's so grateful that we went down that road. I know it's not exactly where we are going in the next transition (laughs) here, but I'm so glad we talked about that because it can seem like, for example, I have some intention tattoos that I sell and one of them is accept what is. And sometimes depending on the person Mm -hmm. that gets it, there are people that find that one hard to wrap their head around, but it's exactly what you were saying. It's not to say that you just become resigned to your reality or that you don't try to take action in any ways that can be beneficial. It's about accepting the reality without fighting it. And then you have the freedom to take action. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I love it. Let's talk about how you became a morning person after all of this, because there is a whole other story to Hal Elrod. So let's go into that. Yeah, and this is really, I mean, my life's work revolves around what we're going to talk about now. I say that in my life, I've had two rock bottoms, right? And we've all had a rock bottom or or many of them. And we have more along the way, which is just like you hit the lowest point in your life, like the most difficult challenge you've ever endured. And it's different based on where you're at. So I'm not, I would never say one person's rock bottom is harder than another person's because like when I was in seventh grade and I got broken up with by my girlfriend, right? That was like, I didn't, I I wanted to die. Like I, I was like, what's the point of living if we can't be together? You know what I mean? So relatively speaking, that was just as tough for me at, it, you know, 12 years old as it was, you know, something else would be now, but like a divorce would be now. My first rock bottom was the car accident. My second rock bottom happened about nine years later, around 2008, 2009, when the US economy crashed. And at that time, I hit the Hall of Fame with Cutco, right? So I achieved that goal. And then I launched a coaching business. I started doing success coaching, sales coaching, life coaching, business coaching, yada, yada, yada. And I had launched my speaking career. I had started getting paid to speak. And I had written my first book, Taking Life Head On. And those were like my, my dream was be author, be a keynote speaker and be a coach. I, those were my three things I wanted. I thought it would be a way for me to help other people and, and, and live my dream and blah, blah, blah. I had a six figure business at that time. I had built up to about $10,000 a month in income. And I only share that because it's relative to how much I lost. <laughs> I was living my dream, right? Doing what I love, work I love, didn't feel like work at all. I just bought my first brand new house. I met the woman of my dreams who I'm now married to, you know, 10 years later or eight years later or whatever. And then my car, I bought my dream car, right? So like everything was great. Almost overnight, the US economy crashes. I lose over half my income. I went from 10,000 a month to 4,000 a month. And when my mortgage, if your mortgage is 3,200 a month, right? $4,000 a month doesn't, you know, just my mortgage and my car payment and insurance was $4,000 a month. And that was my whole income at this point. So I started living on credit cards. And as a result of spiraling downward. Like I kept thinking I was at my lowest point and then another client canceled and then another client canceled and then I lost something else. And then, you know, speaking engagement canceled. It just kept getting worse and worse and worse. And for the first time in my life, I got deeply depressed to the point of being suicidal. I never would have done it because of what my parents had already gone through. I would never put them through that. But I feel like I get where people are at in that dark place where you you hate your life and you don't want to get out of bed. I lost my house and I stopped exercising completely. I canceled my gym membership. And it really was physically, mentally, and emotionally, financially, and spiritually, I was at my lowest point, even lower than the car accident. What got you through the car accident was the five-minute rule. 
what changed for you that the five minute rule no longer applied? Jess, you're so good. You're so good. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, that's a great question. And there's two things I can, I can point to. Number one was at that point in my development or my maturity, I understood how to apply the can't change it rule to something I couldn't change, accept it and be at peace with it. And I did that when I went from 10,000 a month to like 8,000 a month, right? I'm like, okay, I lost a few clients. It's okay. I can't change it. I'm going to keep moving forward. I had never applied it to where it kept getting worse and worse and worse and worse and worse by the day for six consecutive months. And also right around that time, my publisher that published my first book disappeared with over $10,000, which for me at that time was a lot of, I mean, it's a lot of money, period. But he ran off and stole all of my royalties. My first book became a number one bestseller on Amazon, and I never got a dime. Like he, my publisher went out, like went out of business and just left the country. It's crazy. So I dealt with that too. So all these things. So that's the first answer is I had never dealt with the can't change philosophy applied to something where you, all right, I accept it. And then it's worse. And it's that spiraling downward for six months. That's the first thing. The second thing, and this may have been actually the to like this, literally the second one might be all of it. I had been taking Adderall for a couple of years. And this was like back when, at least to me, I, I only knew that it helped you. I didn't know that there was any negative consequences, you know, 10 years ago. But uh, I had been taking it for like a year and a half or two years. And then I like someone forwarded me a link. Hey, you know, Adderall is actually bad for you. You should stop taking it. And I read the article. I'm like, oh, dude, I'm done. And I threw in my Adderall. So I went from taking, you know, whatever milligrams a day to cold turkey. And I mean, that's a narcotic. So I was having hardcore withdrawals. But I didn't know it. I had no awareness of that's what was happening. So I felt horribly, deeply depressed. And I didn't know why. And I had the biochemistry thing combined with the fact that it just happened to hit, you know, like, <laughs> here advice, if you are taking Adderall, don't stop taking it like when everything is spiraling out of control downward. <laughs> right? Like, you weather the storm. Yeah, I'm just, uh, you know, I'm not, I don't advocate Adderall at all. But, but yeah, so I think that's the answer to your question. It was the, one of, or if not both of those elements. And especially the first one, I think the second one, having had a birth control prescription myself that I decided to, sh little TMI, but the point is I can relate because I, I decided to change <laughs> my pill so I wouldn't have my period for three months at a time the day that I moved into my new apartment and got married and I had all of these things, these great things happening, but I had moved, I got a puppy and I got married all within like this, the day that I basically started <laughs> this new prescription and it made me rage filled for three months. It was a horrible thing to go through, especially with everything changing all at once. So I could totally, even from a totally different angle, understand and commiserate with the challenges that come with being emotionally wrecked from a chemical reaction to something going on in your body. So did you even recognize yourself at that point from who you were, you know, after the car accident and all that, that person? Did you even relate to that person anymore? No, not and that. And that was what was so hard is my identity. I'm like, what the, I, this isn't me. I'm a success coach. Like I help people. I don't need help. You know, it was, it really messed with me. And the thing is I kept it a secret because other than my, well, my wife, but she was, we were just dating after, I mean, we were only dating for like a year at that time. She was the only one that knew I really kept it a secret because I was a success coach. So my identity was really around being, you know, able to help people be successful. And so for me to reach out to people and go, hey, I'm failing miserably, but I really need clients. So do you need a success coach that gets what they're going through? Because I'm going through it too, right? Like not a very good angle for getting more clients. <laughs> so I kept it a secret. And finally, my wife one day just goes, sweetheart, it was, it was about six months after the, like everything started spiraling out of control and I'm losing my finance. And I had accumulated $52,000 in credit card debt in six months of personal credit card debt. And 
I was, again, another shock to my identity. I was a guy that like, dude, I don't have debt. I pay off my credit cards every month. And then I lost control of that. 50 grand in credit card debt, when it's you see no end in sight, it's just getting worse and worse and your income's dropping and you can't. And then I stop paying the mortgage. I lose my house, all of it together. So she says, I don't know what to do to help you, but I hate seeing you like this. Why don't you call your friend, John? He loves you. He's not going to judge you. He's not going to tell anyone. And he's a business genius. He can probably help you turn this around. And right when she told me, I was like, oh, you're so right. Why didn't I call him like, months ago, you know, but all right, can't change it. So I called him, I unloaded, I just told him everything that was going on and that had happened. I said, buddy, I got my laptop open. Uh, I'm ready to take notes. Like you tell me what to do and I will do it. In my mind, I was expecting to get like a, like a, you know, three or four steps to turn this all around, to get more clients, increase my income. And so I go, I I told him I'm, I'm ready, you know, for your advice. What do I do? He asked me a question that really pisses me off. He says, are you exercising every day? (laughs) And I go, what does that have to do with anything I just told you? And I'm starting to picture him on the other end of the line, like, you know, playing a game on his phone or something, (laughs) right? I'm like, what are you talking about? And he said, Hal, he goes, look, I'm serious. You're a smart guy. But if you're not putting yourself in a peak mental, physical and emotional state every day and learning and and growing, he said, if you're just feeling depressed and you're not, you know, you're sticking, I told him I wasn't reading any books, I wasn't doing anything. And he said, if you're just feeling depressed in your office and you're at a low, you know, your mental, emotional and physical space is very, is very mediocre. Good luck turning this around. He goes, you're a smart guy, but you got to get yourself in a peak state every day and learn. If I were you, I would go for a run every morning or even a walk or a jog or whatever. Listen to a self-help business audio book, something like that, and just do that. And then be there ready to think of ideas of how you could solve your problems or grow your business. And I said, John, I hate running. And he said, what do you hate worse, running or your current life situation that you just described to me? And I was like, all right, screw you, dude. I'll go for a run. (laughs) And the next morning I went for a run and Jess, this was it. I mean, this was the morning that changed my entire life. I heard a quote from Jim Rohn. And by the way, I'd heard the quote before. And this is important for everybody, right? Just because you've heard something before, are you living it? That's all that matters. Not, I already know this. It's like, am I living this? That's a better question. Here was the quote. He said, your level of success will seldom exceed your level of personal development because success is something you attract by the person you become. And I rewound it and I listened to it again. Your level of success will seldom exceed your level of personal development because success is something you attract by the person you become. And I went, dude, I am not dedicating time each day to become the person that I need to be to create the success that I want in my life. And then it hit me and I literally, I ran home and I opened my computer and here was my idea. I didn't know if it would work, but I thought if I create the most extraordinary personal development routine known to man, or at least known to me, and I do it every day, that should accelerate my personal development so that I can take myself to the level I need to be at so that I'm capable of achieving the levels of success that I want. I didn't know if it would work, but I did about an hour of research on Google, like, what do success people do every day? And one thing I kept coming across is they wake up early, they wake up early, they have, they have morning rituals. And I was like, no, nah, no, that's not for me. I'm not a morning person. So I just kept searching, searching, searching. And I basically went with a list of six practices. And these are now known as the lifesavers. In fact, if anybody's taking notes, you can, you can, you know, this is savers is an acronym for the six practices to make it memorable. And the first S is for silence. So that's meditation or prayer. The A is for affirmation. So affirmations are, by the way, which they've gotten a bad rap because, in fact, let me give a little bonus lesson. Is that okay if I teach something here? 
by all means. So affirmations over the years have been taught in a way that for most people doesn't resonate. They've been taught usually as I am statements where you speak in the present tense as if you already, you know, you were something or had something. So I am a millionaire. I am a millionaire. I am a millionaire, right? And the problem with that is if you're not a millionaire. Cognitive dissidence. Yeah, it's incongruent. And your subconscious is like, you're, you're not even a hundred thousand error, right? <laughs> it doesn't align. There's, there's, no, there's not truth to it. I mean, I'm sure there's some value in that. If you do it enough, you trick yourself or whatever. But the other problem is that affirmations are taught in flowerly language and they're not practical. So you've probably heard this, like one of the most popular affirmations, I don't know who originated it, but I'm paraphrasing it, but it's like money flows to me effortlessly and abundantly. Like what the heck is that? <laughs> I think I have heard something along those lines myself. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if it was like Jack, and I'm a big fan of Jack Canfield, but that might have been one of his. I don't know. If anything, that's the opposite to me. That's passive. Like, wow, I could sit back and do nothing because money flows to me effortlessly and abundantly. Here's an example of an affirmation that I would use. It'd be something like, I'm committed to making 20 phone calls per day to prospects five days a week so that I can sell $500,000 of my product and earn $200,000 this year so that I can retire by age 45. That's an affirmation to me. It tells you what you want, why you want it, what you're committed to doing, how often, and how many days a week. That's an affirmation that actually programs your subconscious mind for success, not based on some fantasy of money flowing into your life, not based on the lie that says I am something that I'm not, but based on this is what I want. This is why I want it. This is what I'm committed to doing each and every day to achieve it. You know, right? That's an affirmation that actually creates results. So when I started the whole idea of the Miracle Morning, I'm like, I want to make sure this is practical so that a lot of these practices that are older than dirt, I'll go through the rest of the practices. Affirmations. The V is for visualization, right? So we got silence, affirmations, visualization. The E is for exercise. So visualization combined with the affirmation piece that you just said, so you're visualizing yourself making those 20 calls? It can be. So, uh, you know, I'll, I'll dive in on this real quick. So visualization is another thing that people struggle with. The way it's been taught over the years, again, by most of the gurus, uh, I believe it does a disservice to people. And what I mean by that is most gurus teach you to visualize the ideal outcome. So see yourself driving the car or on stage, getting the award or holding your finished book in your hands. Now, there's value to that. And I'll explain why that's important and how that can change your life. But I believe it's without the other half of what I'll, what I'll teach you, it, it can be counterproductive, kind of like the affirmations about things flowing into your life without you having to do anything. If you visualize the outcome, the problem with that is that, actually, first, let's talk about the benefit. The benefit of that is this. Imagine every goal, dream, or desire that you have, Jess, as a little ball of energy, like microscopic ball of energy floating around in your consciousness. Got it? Yeah. Okay. And we all have all these dreams, goals, and desires, some that we think about a lot, some that we never think about, some that we've given up on. What doesn't matter? Most of the big goals, dreams, and desires, I like to imagine that that little ball of energy is coated in like a thick black membrane that is made up of our fears our self-doubt and our insecurity. And that membrane is thick, it's strong, and it contains that ball of energy. That energy is unlimited potential to manifest anything in our life. Problem is, it's coded in the fear, insecurity, and the self-doubt, and so we don't manifest our greatest vision for our life. 
because of that. We let that fear and self-doubt hold us back. But when you visualize the ideal outcome for those moments, you're literally, you're breaking through the fear bubble, the, the membrane, you're breaking through that and you're taking that little ball of energy and actually seeing what it would look like if it grew to its full potential. And that's powerful because science has shown that that actually increases your belief that it's possible once you can see it. So that's why it's powerful. It's likely that visualizing the ideal outcome will get you out of your fear long enough to actually start considering it and even taking action toward it. However, the problem is they've also done research. There was a Harvard study where they had the subjects visualize and by visualizing their ideal outcome over and over and over by doing it for an extended period of time, they actually, they lessened their desire or their drive to do something necessary to make it happen because they were tricking themselves. You know what I'm talking about? Yes, because they, I've heard it said a few different ways. One, if you tell people your goals, then unlike, I know I've listened to your show and you talked with someone who used personal commitment to other people to further their aim and their commitment, but I've also heard that it can hurt someone. Because by sharing that they are going to do it, they get the sense of satisfaction that they've already done it. I call it sandcastles in the sky. My students that work with me often feel this sense of accomplishment from just planning what they want to do, that they don't feel the same desire to actually go take the actions themselves. Yeah, no, you're you're absolutely right. And that's the thing. You visualize it. You're like, it's funny, you know, like the joke of it is, you know, someone asks about your goals and you're like, yeah, I'm going to be a millionaire or whatever. And they go, really? Are you on track? What are you doing to make that happen? You're like, I visualize it every day. (laughs) So how do we get around it? How do we not? So here's what you do. You do that because it is important. You visualize the end result. So I'll give you a very concrete example. Well, let me tell you the lesson and the example. The second half of your visualization during the miracle morning is you visualize yourself doing the thing that you have to do that day that you must do in order to make your ideal outcome, that long-term vision, a reality. So if you're visualizing running a marathon and you see yourself running across the finish line, that's great. It creates belief that it's possible. You see it now. You know it can happen because you see it and you feel more motivated to make it happen now that it's a real life you know, vision. Now you want to visualize yourself lacing up your running shoes and heading out the front door and actually running with a smile on your face, maybe your iPods on. Visualize yourself running but enjoying that process. If you need to make sales calls, visualize yourself making 20 calls on the phone with a smile on your face, scheduling appointments, writing them in your planner or writing them on your Outlook or whatever. For me, here's my example. When I wanted to write The Miracle Morning, I failed three years in a row. It was my goal in 2009, 10, and 11, I think. It was my goal and I failed. And then I wrote it in 2012. I started visualizing the book being done. And by the way, here's a little bonus trick for anyone that wants to write a book. Have your cover designed right away. That's the first thing I recommend my coaching clients do is I have them go get their book cover designed before they do anything else or while they're writing. First and foremost, that way they have a real vision of what it's going to look like and they can also make it public and give a date. Hey, this will be out on shelves by this date. Hold me to it. And I'm a big believer in public accountability. And there is a difference where you just tell people you're going to do something and you feel the benefit of doing it because they give you praise. And there's a difference between that and telling someone you're going to do something by which date and you tell them, I'm giving you my word, you can hold me accountable. And if I don't do it, I'm a flake and you should defriend me because you shouldn't be friends with someone that can't even stick to their word, right? Like that's how I, I view public accountability, right? Is you really put yourself out there and you leverage your integrity. I would just add a little sidebar to that. 
you want to make sure that these goals that you're setting are actually based on your values, not just shiny pennies that your ego thinks will complete you. And then you set these aggressive timelines to get the shiny penny, but truly it's not based on a value. So you end up having this like shame ball and stress. That's not what you're speaking about. You're speaking about coming from your values, creating the goal to express those values and then committing to it and doing it in a way that doesn't ruin you (laughs) along the way. Yes, very important bonus lesson for everyone listening. Yes, that, no, that's exactly it. Yeah, make sure that it's goals that are in alignment with your values and with what's, what's truly important to you and, and what you want for your life and all of the above. So I visualize the end result. I would see people reading the book with the look on their face like, oh my gosh, this is changing my life. And like I would imagine them having those thoughts. Then I would see them telling a friend going, oh my gosh, you have to read this book. It's life-changing. And it is interesting now how much that happens. Like the Miracle Morning is spreading around the world via word of mouth. Like I'm not doing a lot of stuff in different countries, but it's crazy. Like the last 10 people that have joined the Miracle Morning community on Facebook, I just read this. My mom was here this morning. She's visiting from out of town. I go, mom, how cool is this? And I read her of the last 10 people that, that jo- requested to join the Miracle Morning community on Facebook, eight or nine of them were from other countries. And it was like Spain, Paris, Canada, Chile, Argentina, like it was just crazy. I'm like, mom, is this crazy? Like people around the world? Anyway, so long story short. Uh, so I visualized myself seeing the book being done and that got me excited to create it. But here's the problem, right? If that would have been the end, I would have easily been like, yeah, that's going to be great one day when I have a book. Then I would have gone about my day like I always did. The most important part of visualization, that got the fire, right? Got it going. But what actually created the flame, what actually created results was I then visualized myself at my keyboard typing like a maniac with the same look on my face of inspiration that the reader had on their face reading the words that I wrote, right? And I wanted to come from that place of writing from authenticity and connecting with the higher power and whatever. I'd always like have like a mantra of like, let me in this moment, let the words flow through me that the reader needs on this page. Like that was my thing is it's not about me. It's about how can I channel inspiration to deliver to the reader? The most important thing though is I visualize myself typing the book and that's the only thing that would make the first vision a reality, right? (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Here's the thing about this is your visualization of the activity. You need to see yourself enjoying it at such a high level that you want nothing more than to open your eyes and lace up your running shoes, open your computer, you know, pick up the phone, whatever it is. Wake up in the morning. Yeah, wake up in the morning. Yeah, and and that's in the Miracle Morning book. There are bedtime affirmations that you have access to that they're kind of more of an affirmation, but also a little visualization, but it's, it's setting your intentions for the morning so that when the alarm goes off, you've already programmed your subconscious for what's going to happen. So you don't have to think about it. You literally, when you read these affirmations, the alarm goes off in the morning and you just pop out of bed because it's already like you you set your intentions and you program your subconscious right before you went to sleep. And if you think about it, your first thought in the morning is kind of a bonus lesson, but your first thought in the morning is almost always your last thought before bed. Like if you went to bed going, oh my gosh, I have to wake up in the morning for that thing that I'm dreading at work or whatever. Well, then as soon as the alarm clock goes off, you go, oh my gosh, it's Tuesday. I have to do that thing I'm dreading at work, right? But like when I was a kid on Christmas, it was the opposite. It was like, oh my gosh, I can't wait to wake up. And my last thought before bed was the first thought when I woke up. Oh my gosh, it's here. It's Christmas. And what I realized is that, wait a minute, why does that have to be, why does that experience of waking up in the morning excited to jump out of bed, why does that have to be a passive thing reserved to your circumstances, the time of year? Why can't that be something that we create every single day of our lives? 
in the book, right, I break down these, the five-step snooze-proof wake-up strategy. That's the first step. And that's how I beat the snooze button is I realized that I could create my experience of waking up if I took responsibility and I actively did that before I went to bed. So now we're on to E in the savers. The E is for exercise. Now, you can still go to the gym in the evening or run in the afternoon or whatever, but there's simply no excuse. There's no good reason to not harness the benefits of morning exercise where, you know, within the first 30 to 60 minutes of your morning, getting your heart rate up, you're getting the blood and the oxygen to your brain that allows you to think clearer, make better decisions, have more energy, you're releasing the endorphins, you feel better, right? You, the miracle morning, it's as little as one minute. You know, there's a six-minute miracle morning. But most people do a 60-minute miracle morning. Some do a 30. You know, it just depends. But so it's, it's literally you're doing like 10 minutes of exercise or five to 10 minutes of exercise. It doesn't take a lot. In fact, whenever I'm in the morning, if I'm like doing my meditation, but I'm, I can tell I'm just sluggish, I'll stand up. I'll do 60 seconds of jumping jacks. And it's amazing. My physical state goes from like a two to like an, a seven, eight, or nine within 60 seconds. It's amazing. So that's the E. The R is for reading. And not like Fifty Shades of Grey, which my wife's going to go see with her friends tonight, <laughs> or Harry Potter. No, not those books, but books, obviously, personal development that allow you to gain the knowledge you need to take any area of your life to the next level, improve your relationships, your health, your finances, literally, like any area of your life, you're a book away from figuring out how to take it where you want it to be. The Miracle Morning would be a great one. <laughs> That's a good start. Yeah. The Miracle Morning. Uh, yeah, it's a good start. And then the last S is for scribing. And scribing is a fancy word for writing, which essentially is, you know, journaling or writing out your goals or, you know, there's a few different options. But my, my favorite is journaling. And by the way, my favorite journal is called the five minute journal. Have you, have you heard of that yet? I've mentioned it probably five times on the show so far. And we had UJ Ramdas on the show. So yes, big fan. Oh, yeah. I love UJ's friend now. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, big fan. Cool. So that's what I use as well. Yeah, I love it as well. That's in a nutshell, the six things we need to be doing in order to get the most out of our mornings. Do you split it equally in the hour, the half hour or the six minutes? So I recommend that when you start, you split it equally. Like my first miracle morning, I did 10 minutes each, but then it morphed where I'm like, all right, I want a little more reading, a little less, you know, visualization, a little less affirmations. I don't need 10 minutes of affirmations. I can read in five. I can visualize for five minutes. You know, I can put that, add that to the reading, et cetera, et cetera. And by the way, I, I just realized that we totally went deeper into the content and I'll just wrap up the story since that, that's where we started. So here's what happened. I ran home. I came to list of these six things and I just realized I was trying to figure out, when am I going to do this? Like, I'm so busy trying to, like, not lose my house. Well, I lost my house. I'm like, I'm, just, I'm busy trying to survive. And then it hit me. The only thing that makes sense, if I'm going to be doing these activities that put me in a peak physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual state and physical state, first thing in the morning. All these successful people, they, they start out in the morning. They have this morning ritual. And I thought, I've never been a morning person. But, you know, if I want my life to be different, I have to be willing to do something different. So that night, I just moved my alarm clock up by an hour, which went from 6 a.m., which is when I had to wake up, to 5 a.m., which is when I was going to wake up to work on myself. And by the way, a little side distinction, if you think about it, most people, you know, the alarm goes off in the morning and we hit the snooze button. That's literally starting your day with A, procrastination, and B, we're sending a message to the universe or even to our subconscious that says, I don't have the discipline to get out of bed in the morning when my alarm goes off let alone the discipline I need to do the things that I want. And, you know, T.R. Becker said in, in his book, Secrets of the Millionaire Mind, how we do anything is how we do everything. And so what I realized is that when the alarm goes off in the morning, that's life's first gift. 
It's also life's first test and life's first opportunity to either get out of bed and say to ourselves, I'm committed to dedicating some time to my personal development to become the person that I need to be to create the life that I want. It's life's first choice. Life's first choice, yeah. Because you have the choice. It's not necessarily like life is testing you or anything. Life's just happening. But it's our first choice we get to make in our own life and our experience of it. Yeah, I like that as well. And so the next morning I woke up and I, I fast forward an hour later. And by the way, I was horrible. I didn't know how to meditate. Most of my meditation <laughs> time was spent reading articles on Google on how to meditate. Like, and same with visualization. But an hour later, here's the crazy part. If you remember, my life was still in shambles, right? I was still $52,000 in debt. My house was months away from going back to the bank. I was in the worst shape of my life physically. I had been deeply depressed. But at 6 a.m. that morning, I felt amazing. And I went, wait a minute. If, even though my life's a mess, if I could feel this amazing every morning where I have this much energy and motivation and clarity, I thought, like this, theoretically, this would be the one thing that would change everything for me. And I didn't know how fast it would happen, Jess. I just went for it. It wasn't called the Miracle Morning. It wasn't going to be a book. It was just my morning personal development. Within two months, I had almost tripled my income from $4,000 a month to about almost, just almost $12,000 a month. And my job or a promotion or land a big account, all I did was with the clarity and the knowledge and the motivation that I was generating in the morning, I was generating it through my Miracle Morning. I just figured out how to get more clients. I just scaled my business and I tripled my clients and tripled my income in two months. I went from being in the worst shape of my life physically to training for and completing a 52-mile ultra marathon five months later, having never run more than a mile in my life. And my depression was gone that morning. It's like I never looked back. I saw bad days, you know, but I got to hit the reset button every day because I didn't wake up to my problems. I woke up to my miracle morning and kind of the rest is history as they say it's it's now tens of thousands of people around the world are doing the miracle morning every day and they're you know they're losing weight they're i mean they're really applying whatever goal they have they're just filtering it through their miracle morning practice i love that i cannot wait i've been a big fan of stephen covey's sharpen this saw or the private victory practice so i've been doing three of your six nice. for a long time now but having listened to you talk about this i have started to do the exercise in the morning i love that you say doesn't mean that you can't do the afternoon workouts because often I prefer those, but to just get a quick start and a quick jolt of energy can't hurt. It can only help to do it in the morning as well. So I am a huge proponent of morning practices. I can't wait to add the visualization and the affirmations. I think those are two of the ones I consistently have not been doing, but I'm so excited and also I'm excited to be going through the book itself because I've been practicing, but now I'm excited to go through and learn all the little tips and tricks you have to share as well. I think that we can say that we've safely covered the doubts and resistance you've had to face in your life. Absolutely. But I would love to wrap up with the last question, which is, what would you tell someone who's just starting out on this journey? There's two things that I would say. Number one is, it's more about who you're becoming than it is what you're doing. We're so focused on doing more, doing more, trying harder. If I try harder, if I work or more hours, right, I'll get more. And, and that's really not the case. If you're average or mediocre in, in an area of your business or your life, but you work harder and harder and harder, you're just going to get you know, slightly less mediocre results. But if you, be, if you develop yourself each day to become a better version of yourself, you increase your knowledge, you increase your ability, you increase your skill, and you get better and better every day, you then can accomplish more with less effort. So again, it's not about, it's not about doing more. It's about becoming more. I think that's so important. That for me 
is how I turned my life around. Within those two months, I figured it out. I became more. I didn't even know the things that I needed to do before I started really focusing on an extraordinary level of personal development each day. So that's the first thing is focus on becoming who you need to be each day, growing yourself. And then success, it's pretty easy, right? Once you become more, it gets pretty easy. And the last thing I'll say is, and I heard my mentor, Kevin Bracey, used to say this, don't wait to be great. Don't wait to be great. What I mean by that is the number one cause of regret and struggle and unfulfilled potential is never deciding that now matters more than any other time in your life. Because it does. It's the, it's the trap of thinking there's always tomorrow. I could always do, le- you know, I'll accept less today and tomorrow I'll be better. But the reality is, if you accept mediocrity today, you're becoming a person who will accept mediocrity and you're likely to repeat it over and over and over again indefinitely. You've got to draw your line in the sand and decide today is the day that I'm going to get clear on what I want for my life. And if you're already clear on that, get clear on what am I going to do each day to become the person I need to be that can achieve what I ultimately want for my life. I love that. Hal, thank you so, so much for coming on the show and sharing your story with us. It's truly, truly an honor. Yeah, thanks for having me. It really, uh, I'm grateful. And anybody that listened, thank you so much for, for listening. I hope you got some value. And, and by the way, if, I don't know if your listeners, if they want, they can get started with the Miracle Morning for free. If they want, you know, if you want to buy the book, Amazon's the best place to buy it. But if you're not ready for that, you can go to miraclemorning.com and you get the Miracle Morning Fast Start Kit, which is the first two chapters of the book. It's a 15 minute video training and a 60 minute audio training. And, and it's all, you know, totally free and nothing to sell or anything at all like that. That's awesome. Thank you so much, Hal. Thank you, Jess. Take care. And there you have it. Thank you, Hal, so much for coming on the show. And thank you for listening. If you would like to send Hal a message, you can hop over to Twitter. His handle is Hal Elrod, H-A-L-E-L-R-O-D. You can also go over to JessLively.com slash Hal Elrod to get the show notes. There are more pull quotes for tweeting than ever before, and they're all listed there. So you can just click them and send them out if you'd like to share. If you would like to follow me on Instagram or Twitter, you can find me at Jess C. Lively. May something wonderful happen to you today. 